So our scripture reading today is on page 1016 of the Black Bibles. Uh, We are in Luke chapter 1 still. And as I promised last week, we'll do more than one sentence from here on. So uh, we're going to look at uh, the birth of John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Uh, This is going to be verses 5 through 25. Whenever you go to a, when you go to a, a good concert, I don't know if this is true at cheaper concerts, but when you go to a good concert, there's always, there's always the headliner, but then there's always that opening band. And, you know, you're, you're all right with, a lot of times maybe you're like, ah, eh, I don't really, I don't know who that is. And so you just show up late and just get there for the headliner. Um, Amy and I did that once. This will show our age and also the culture we grew up in. Uh, when she was pregnant with Ray, uh, we were able to go to a Michael W. Smith concert. That's right. Be jealous. Uh, and there was an opening band that I'd never heard of, and so I didn't really care that we weren't in there. Um, and there was this weird band called Jars of Clay. And I was like, that's never going to stick. And then I bought every, I think I have more CDs of theirs than I do of Michael W. Smith's. So, just missed opportunity there. But uh, also with comedians, you know, the headlining comedians, they will, I don't know if you've been to a comedy show, but there will often be an opening comedian who sort of prepares the people, gets them, you know, gets them in a laughing mood. I mean, hopefully, <coughs> hopefully he'll be funny, but not as funny as the headlining comedian. That's always a an embarrassing moment. The same is true, you know, for speeches. When a, someone is giving a, a speech, you know, invited to give a commencement address, uh, rarely do they just go straight up to the podium and speak. But there's someone who comes up to the podium ahead of them and introduces them. Uh, and the more important they are, the more lofty the introduction will be. Uh, and so, you know, you get the whole ladies and gentlemen, uh, the president of the United States and the band plays its fanfare. Uh, but this is just, this is standard, it's, it's etiquette, it's proper. And interestingly, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all four accounts of the Gospel, before they even introduce you to Jesus, maybe not before they talk about Jesus, but before you see Jesus in his ministry, all of them talk about John and his ministry. John the Baptist, this man. Now Luke is the only one who did that historical, that intentional research that we talked about last week and finds out about John's birth. And it's interesting that John's birth has some some rings to it that that sort of uh, prepare us for Jesus' birth. And it's interesting how, how Luke sets this up for us. And so he sort of says, so there was an announcement about John's uh, birth that was to come. And then there was an announcement about Jesus's birth that was to come. And then there's even an announcement of John's birth when it happens. And there's an announcement of Jesus's birth when it happens. And in all of it, it's sort of playing, uh, preparing you for well, this is miraculous and interesting and phenomenal what's happening with John, and yet 
it's even more miraculous and more phenomenal what happens with Jesus. So, you know, where, where John's birth is mostly miraculous and highly improbable, Jesus' conception is entirely impossible. Uh, the, while John, the announcement of John's birth comes from uh, Zechariah singing a song about his son, the announcement of Jesus' birth is angels singing a song of victory and announcing it not just to the, announcing it to the world that this young man has been born. You know, John, uh, John is the descendant, we'll find out, of, of two uh, descendants of Aaron. So he is a very, he has a good pedigree. He's, he is ready to be a priest. And that's pretty cool. Well, Jesus is a descendant of, of two descendants of David. And so he's ready to be a king. And we've talked about this before. I mean, imagine the, uh, the family reunions are, were a little much to bear for Elizabeth and Zechariah as they would get together. Well, John, well, Jesus. Well, John, well, Jesus. Okay, okay, I get it. Yes, your son is greater. I get it. Uh, but the reality is John embraced that. He recognized that, that his ministry was purely a preparatory ministry to prepare God's people for the coming of their Savior. So let's see, let's get introduced to these folks. See, uh, uh, we'll meet Zechariah and Elizabeth and hear about this announcement of the, of the conception of John. Let's stand for God, the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled. When he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? 
for I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. So before we uh, get into the promise announced about John's birth, we are introduced to his parents, to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And, uh, and while it's certainly true that we see his pedigree is a, a pure pedigree of, of uh, descended from Aaron, only, only Levites who were de- descended from Aaron or only Levites who were descended from Levi uh, really could, could serve as priests. Uh, and so he's, a, he's got a pure priestly line. Now I know that you're thinking now pretty soon we're going to learn that Elizabeth and, and Mary were cousins. Uh, so how is that possible? And certainly, uh, it was certainly not against any rules for a person of one tribe to marry a person of another tribe. And so to trace Elizabeth through one line, you would probably be able to find your way all the way back to Aaron. But somewhere in her line, a uh, person from the tribe of Judah, it seems, married in. So uh, Elizabeth and Mary are cousins. They're related in, a, in some way that we're not clear about, but the Bible doesn't... Uh, give us everything that we're just curious over. But what we learn about them is more than just their pure pedigree or their pure bloodline. Uh, We learn three pretty important things about Zechariah and Elizabeth in the beginning of this, in the introduction here in verses 5 to 7, and it has to do with righteousness and suffering. So these are the three things we learn. First of all, we learn that they were righteous before the Lord. Uh, This is not a statement of their sinlessness, but rather it's a statement of their status before God. God had declared them righteous. They were righteous before God. Or just, righteous and just are the same word in Greek. Also, it's it's the root of the word justified. And so you could just as accurately say that they were justified before God. Not justified because of their actions or because of who they were, but justified because of their relationship with God. These two and many others had faith in God. 
They were what many prophets refer to as the remnant of Israel. A remnant who still trusted God, who still looked to God for their salvation, who still trusted and prayed regularly that one day God would send a Messiah who would rescue them. And so they had a faith in God and their faith, like all followers of God throughout all of history, their faith was reckoned to them by God as righteousness. They were righteous before God, not righteous on their own or righteous because of their good behavior, but righteous before God, righteous because of God's relationship to them. And then the second thing we learn, and it is always second, is that as a result of that relationship, they were obedient. We're told that they walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And the order is significant. It's not that Zechariah and Elizabeth were obedient, therefore they were righteous before God. It is they were righteous before God, and so they were obedient. It is a pattern that's established very early in Scripture. You can go all the way back to Genesis 6 when the description of the fallen world and the sinfulness and wickedness of man and God determines that he's going to uh, purge the earth of this wickedness, but he decides to save one man and his family. And at the end of describing the wickedness of the world, the author says, uh, but Moses found, or I'm sorry, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then the next sentence says, now Noah was a righteous man. And it's always that order. First, the favor of God. And then that impacts how we would want and choose to live. It's not that how I choose to live will impact how God views me, but God's view of me impacts how I live. They were blameless and upright in their living because of their relationship with their God. It didn't cause that relationship. And that's important that the cause is God. God moves first. God declares us righteous and then we choose to live for him. And so it's important to see this before we get too deep into doubting Zechariah's uh, conversation with the angel. Because the first thing we have to understand about Zechariah and Elizabeth is that they, they are two people who live lives of faith and faithfulness. They did not look at their lives and think, we've been pretty good. God owes us something good in our life. No, they looked at their lives rather and said, God has been so good to us. He has made us his own. He has called us by his name. While there are certainly sorrows, nothing else matters. What matters is that we belong to God. And if we can know that for sure, we can endure anything. Which brings us to that third thing that we learn about them, that their lives, just because uh, they had been chosen or called 
declared righteous by God just because they were living lives of obedience and faithfulness. It did not mean that their lives were all rainbows and unicorns for the rest of their days. There was trial. There was difficulty. We're told they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. And so now when we see that, we realize why Luke stressed so strongly their faith and their faithfulness and that God, before God, they were righteous. Because while in any culture and time, it is a hard, hard thing to be childless. In that particular culture, in first century Judaism, it wasn't just hard. It wasn't just sad. It was viewed by your neighbors as judgment itself. Because the argument went like this. Children are a blessing from the Lord. The psalmist tells us, blessed is the man whose home is full of children like arrows in his quiver. You are blessed when you have children. And so, if you don't have children, you aren't being blessed. If you aren't being blessed, shouldn't we ask why? And so the assumption is, if God blesses those he loves and curses those whom he hates, and you have not been blessed... Well, then you must have been cursed. And so what have you done? There's something not right. And maybe it starts with just empathy and, and sympathy. And, you know, every, every baby shower starts out with, oh, you'll be next, Elizabeth. Oh, you'll be next. You just wait. Your time is coming. Just wait. Oh, you can, oh, you can hold the baby. You've got to get ready. You better, you better hold that baby. Oh, look, she's such a natural. And, and then pretty soon she's not next. And she's not next. And she's not next. And then suddenly all the things that you said, like, just keep praying and, you know, God's going to bless you. And, and so all those words seem suddenly very empty. And so now there's just whispers. And maybe her invitation to the next shower gets lost. Or maybe you explain you just didn't want her to feel uncomfortable. And so you, you knew how hard it was, but really it was you who was uncomfortable every time she's around. It's a pretty telling thing that this passage starts by telling us that Elizabeth was righteous before God and ends by telling us, in her words, she says, the Lord has removed my reproach among the people. God sees her as righteous. God has not rejected her. But her people see what she's going through and, well, she's just kind of unclean, not quite whole. You know, we might not do that. We might have enough intelligence now to know, hey, 
that is an awful thing to do to a young family, to a, to a mother, to a mother-to-be, to anyone who's going through that. Maybe we're, we're smart enough or like our culture of Christianity hasn't gone that deep down that rabbit hole to think that, you know, barrenness is, is God's sign that he has rejected you in some way. But there are other things that we say, this is a blessing from God. And if you're not living under this blessing, maybe you're actually living under God's curse. I think sometimes we might unintentionally, and maybe not here at Hope of Christ, I hope not here at Hope of Christ, but I know churches that view not being married yet as not quite having arrived yet. And, you know, because marriage is a blessing and it's even designed by God and it was put into creation. It's how he's, it's, it's, it's part of the creation mandate. And, and if you aren't married, well... I don't know. I mean, because it's a blessing. And so if you're not being blessed, why? Why aren't you being blessed? Maybe it's something in you. Maybe you should do something about that. Maybe, you know, and then we start like, I know, I mean, I know a, a, a single woman who, uh, who people are coming to her now and suggesting uh, people who used to be in this woman's children's ministry because now they're adults but she's more adult but they're adults at least and they're like have you considered and she's like i taught him in fourth grade i'm not going to date him thank you though but this this idea that oh well you're you're not whole you're not complete you're not really being blessed by god and so it's just god has declared elizabeth righteous her neighbors have declared her reproachable. You know, it's not uncommon that righteousness and suffering in this world go uh, more hand in hand than we would like to imagine. I think a lot of it is it it's, is a reminder that, um, as Jesus said, in this world you're going to have trouble. The world is fallen. There's going to be struggle. There's going to be trial. And as you follow God, that's not going to eliminate those trials, but it will certainly give you one to turn to, one to cling to during those trials. And the reality is, if we're familiar at all with God's ways, don't we recognize that at least when you're reading the Bible and you read about uh, a woman who we're being told uh, doesn't have children, you get a little excited, don't you? Because it's like, oh, I know how most of these turn out in the Bible. I think she's about to have a little baby. And sure enough, so here we go. We look at prayers and answers in 8 to 17. So some background about uh, the priesthood. So this information that he's of the division of the Abijah division, even if that's not how you say it, I like saying it that way. It sounds like we're from Tatooine or something. So the Abijah division. So the divisions of the priests were, there were 24 divisions, and you would come to the temple uh, twice a year for, for a week, and that way all the services would be covered. Uh, so you would have these opportunities in your division to oversee temple worship uh, beyond the special feast worships. 
feast day worships. And so uh, here is the, it's the week for his division. And there were more priests than um, activities in worship. Uh, even though there was daily worship and daily sacrifice, uh, there were so many priests that they would draw lots to see who would perform the different aspects, different things that would go on, uh, whether it's going in and lighting the lamps or trimming the lamps, uh, light, you know, burning the incense at the evening, uh, you know, offering the morning and evening sacrifices. So there were things to do, but there were a lot of priests even when it's divided out. And so you would draw lots. And what do you know? Lucky Zechariah, he just happened to be chosen to burn the incense. So burning the incense was this activity that happened in the evening. It was at the end of the day. And so uh, the priest would come in to the, the holy place, not the holiest place. The holiest place was where the ark would have been and where only one priest once a year would go for the Day of Atonement. But then there was that room just outside of that, but still only priests, only during the acts of worship. Uh, in there was like the lampstand, the bread table, uh, and the incense. And so... To burn the incense, you would go in, you would burn the incense, and it was a reminder that the Bible reminds us that our prayers rise before the Lord like incense. And so our prayers are a sweet aroma to God. And so you would burn this incense, and while burning the incense, you would pray. And it wouldn't be a long prayer, it would be a brief thing, because it's the end of the day, and a lot of people would have gathered just for this closing of the day. And then you would come out after burning the incense in a brief prayer, And you would pronounce the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you uh, peace. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and be gracious to you. And so it would be a, uh, a pretty exciting thing to be the priest chosen to do that. I mean, it would be, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Uh, some historians point out that once your lot was chosen, you didn't get, you weren't put back in. So this is his opportunity. I mean, he's going to go in and pray for the people. He's going to go, you know, you got to burn the incense. He has been practicing this ironic blessing. He's not going to trip over the words like your pastor does with his benediction. Like he's got this down. He's so excited. Uh, have you ever... Uh, Have you ever gone into a room that you are 100% sure is empty? You know, maybe you're cleaning, maybe you're setting things up, you go into this room and you know you're alone in the room. Maybe you're humming, maybe you're singing full voice, thinking about things, maybe you're praying. Maybe it's just a nice time of communing with God, you're praying out loud and you turn around and suddenly there's a dude just standing there watching you. Uh, It's a little... It's a little unnerving, isn't it? Like, because you were sure you were alone. Like, you scream, you startle, uh, you know, maybe uh, you got to go change your pants. Um, Imagine now that that person is an actual angel of the Lord. This isn't just a person. This is an angel standing in a room where no one is supposed to even be in this room. So you knew no one would be there. And so when it says, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. I feel like that's probably a kind and delicate way of putting whatever Zechariah just experienced. But it's great because the angel immediately says to him, don't be afraid. Your 
prayer has been heard. And the question is, what prayer? And it seems the answer comes immediately because he says, your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth shall bear a son to you and you will call his name John. Don't you wonder, when did Zechariah quit praying that prayer? When did he stop asking for a son? And if he didn't ever quit praying that prayer, when did he quit believing God would answer that prayer? I mean, maybe he was actually praying that prayer that at that moment, along with other prayers. Maybe, maybe they knew ahead of time, like, hey, your lot's been chosen. You're going to be doing this. And so on his way out the door, maybe Elizabeth says to him, with sort of a twinkle, sort of a smile, but also a little bit of sorrow, hey, don't forget to pray. And I'm sure he would have smiled back because they both know that this is not, I mean, yes, let's pray for this, but okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll pray, Elizabeth. Don't worry, I'll pray. So he's either stopped praying or stopped praying in faith. And yet, God has answered your prayer. You're going to have a son. You will call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Well, of course, you don't really have to announce to Zechariah that if they're going to have a son, they're going to be joyful and glad. But it's beyond just them. Their blessing is a blessing for others. It's a very covenantal-sounding thing, isn't it? I will bless you and make you a blessing to the world. Many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before God. No wine or strong drink. Uh, he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This is sort of a, a Nazarite vow nod. So uh, you would, in the Old Testament, like you knew, like God was calling you to do something specific. Uh, you would take a vow that you're going to be fully focused on that task until it was completed. And part of being focused on it was you weren't going to drink any strong drink, no wine, no strong drink until the task is over. You weren't going to cut your hair uh, until the task was over. Because uh, it was a symbol that, like, I am focused. I am focused on doing what God has called me to do. And here the angel is saying he's going to be focused from birth. Like his task begins at birth and ends when he is dead. Like, he will never, he will always be focused on the work that God has called him to. And what is the work? He's going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Interesting, this language. He's going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. Aren't the children of Israel already the Lord's? It's even a reminder or perhaps a precursor here that, that turning to the Lord, like be belonging to God requires conversion. Like he's going to turn the hearts of the children of God back to God. They will turn to the Lord. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. What is this talking about? Who is 
him. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Well, if you look at the promise, the only him spoken of yet is the Lord God. He just said, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him. Well, him is the Lord God. John, this young man, this unborn child, this unconceived child, is coming before the Lord God. This promise to Zechariah isn't merely, we're going to give you a child. This promise to Zechariah is, the Messiah is coming, and your son is going to prepare God's people for him. The Lord God is coming. It's a reference to our call to worship, that last promise in Malachi 4. Your son will come in the power and spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Earlier, uh, our, the passage we used for our responsive reading This is God himself speaking. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. How compassionate is it of God that he uses our prayers to advance his kingdom? Even prayers that we've forgotten... Even prayers that we utter without even believing God's listening. That is how compassionate God is to even answer the prayers that we don't even believe he's going to hear, let alone respond to. After 400 years of silence, how much were God's people expecting him to answer their prayers? One of the prayers that would have been offered every evening as the incense went up would have been a prayer of, Lord, deliver us, would have been a prayer of, Lord, send your Messiah. Lord, deliver us. Lord, rescue us. How many actually expected him to rescue them? It's like the the farming community that you've heard of, that uh, there's a drought, and so they gather at the church for a prayer meeting to pray for rain. The only problem is only one farmer showed up with an umbrella. Like when we pray, do we recognize I'm speaking to the God who created everything that is, who has told me that he uses his power for my good? Do I pray expecting that he's both good and powerful? This brings us to the final point about doubts and joy. And can anyone really blame Zechariah? I mean, 400 years of silence, that's a long time to be quiet. And his own life, he has certainly, his personal experience has been that God's answer has been no up to this point about a child. Why would that change now? And perhaps even more than that, perhaps he's wondering, why would God choose me? But just because his lapse in faith is relatable, it doesn't mean it's not faithless. 
I mean, just because we're like, oh, I totally get it, that just means we're sinners too. That's why we get it. That's why we're like, of course, why would you not? How shall I know this, he says? Here's this priest, an angel has appeared to him. How shall I know this? For I am old, and my wife is, well, let's just say advanced in years. Uh, at least he's smart enough not to call his wife old, even in, I mean, if there's an angel there, someone else is going to get the news back to his wife that he called her old. And so Gabriel's response, I think, is both a chastisement and an answer. It's both uh, a punishment for his unbelief and proof, the proof he's asking for. It's a scolding and a sign. I like how the angel is a little perturbed. It's like, really? I am an angel of the Lord. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to bring you this good news. So, right, you want a sign? Here's a sign. Shut it. Here's a sign for you. So I don't know if this is just the angel being angry. I don't know if maybe God even prepared the angel. Maybe he said, Gabriel, this is how it's going to go down. But the, the reality is, like, he asks for a sign, but it's a sign because of unbelief, and yet God still gives him a sign. It's just a sign to remind him, hey, you can trust me, but it's still a sign. You're going to be silent until your son is born. That's how you'll know. Like, you won't be able to speak. Since you did not believe my words, you will have no words until your son is born. You can imagine the awkwardness of uh, the folks outside. This has taken a little bit longer than expected. You go in, you light the incense, you say a little prayer, you come out, you bless us, we go home, we have time for supper. This is taking longer. What is going on? Where is Zechariah? I think he's taking this. This is why we only let people do this once in their life, by the way. They all, they're all like, oh, here's my chance. Here's a five-point prayer that no one's going to hear but God because I'm in the holiest room, and then he's going to come out. Thankfully, the, the blessing is scripted because who knows what they would say if they came out and they're like, this is your once-in-a-lifetime chance. And like, where is this guy? And then he finally comes out. And well, he, well, he looks like he's seen a ghost. He looks a little disheveled, a little unput together, unkempt. And they, uh, then they realize he's not talking. And suddenly the game of charades is invented right before their eyes as he's trying to like, and they're like, mm, nothing, I got nothing. Did he snort the incense? So he finally convinces them that at least he's seen a vision. Who knows what they knew about that beyond that. But he goes home after completing his work. And isn't it beautiful that it says he goes home and uh, after he goes home, Elizabeth conceives. Like I'm constantly wondering, because that required a little bit of faith too, didn't it? Like that had to, I don't know how, like he's also mute. So like I don't know how he convinced her, like, hey, an angel told me, and she's thinking, well, that's a new one. <laughs> All right, I'll give you credit for cleverness. But I, don't, I, I just don't know how that goes down because, like, it's still, I mean, listen, they are runners-up for the, they're, they're in the running for first runner-up of most miraculous uh, conception. 
Now, obviously, winner goes to Mary, uh, but they are in the running for second place. Like, they're giving Abraham and Sarah a run for their money with this one. And yet there was still responsibility. It wasn't impossible. It, it required an actual act. And it still, it brings us back to just the beauty of, of Elizabeth's statement at the end here when she it says, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So consider this. She has spent years in the public with people looking on her with scorn or judgment or even pity. And now that she's pregnant, like what would any of us do? I mean, we'd be baby bump posting everywhere, be like, ha ha, how you like me now? You like apples? How you like these apples? We'd be, I mean, we would be out there saying, you thought, and look at me now. Look, at, look, look what God has done. She hides for five months. This is an upright woman. She takes God's promise and God's blessing and just spends five months in the presence of God, just worshiping God, faithfulness, quietness. They don't go out and announce it to the world. It'll be announced soon enough. Folks will see. But for now, there's a quiet worship of God in gratitude. It's a reminder that God's promises are never late. God's compassion is never waning. God is always right on time. And how great is it that, that he uses just the mundane kindnesses to advance his gospel. An old couple has a child. And not only are they personally reminded that God is involved in their lives, but they're reminded that every good blessing isn't order to bless the world. Let's pray. God, thank you for your blessings. God, thank you that your promises are not like our promises. That even when we are faithless, you are faithful. Even when we've stopped praying, you continue to hear. Even when we've stopped believing, you continue to deliver. Thank you, God, for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.